you're uh, visiting this morning, uh, welcome. And if you're um, new here, uh, just to explain, we're working our way through uh, the two letters of Paul to the Christians in Corinth. Uh, These letters were written around the mid-50s, about a year apart. And as we saw from that particular passage, uh, they're very personal letters. the, the New Testament isn't just a list of uh, things for us to believe, a list of doctrines. Uh, it's, it's all letters. It's people uh, writing uh, out of their life uh, into other people's lives. And so um, I think what we're finding as we're going through these two letters is uh, not only are we seeing the truth of who God is and the gospel in Jesus Christ, uh, but we're seeing some very practical Outworking of what it means for us to live as God's people today. Last week we saw how the gospel of God's sovereign grace gives us a wonderful freedom, a freedom to pray because we know that through prayer we are being drawn in to participate in what the Father is doing in making the gospel known to the ends of the earth and also a freedom to plan to plan in faith, uh, always being open to the leading of the Spirit, always ready to change direction without any condemnation because uh, it's his will that matters, not our will. The context of uh, these words uh, that we heard this morning is that Paul had changed his plans to visit Corinth a number of times. Uh, not just because of circumstances that were beyond his control, but also because he was constantly assessing what was going on in Corinth. And so he wanted his visits to them to be uh, productive and not counterproductive. In verse 24, he reminds them of his relationship to them as an apostle. Uh, He was the one who first brought the gospel to Corinth. He was the one that, through whom God established that church in the first place. He contrasts in this verse two different models of authority. One is based on law and the other is based on grace. One has the goal of compliance, the other has the goal of joy. The first model he mentions there is lording it over your faith. Now in this model of leadership, the leader is, as the word suggests, a lord. It's the same phrase, the same word that's used in the phrase Jesus is lord. What's a lord? A lord is someone to whom you pledge your loyalty, someone to whom you commit for unquestioning obedience. Whatever the Lord tells you to do, you do. Whatever he tells you to believe, you take as gospel truth. There is one person and one person only who is qualified and deserving to be the Lord over our faith. That's Jesus Why? Because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We see that in 
Hebrews chapter 12. He's Lord over our faith because he founded our faith and he perfected our faith by going to the cross to die for us. It's on the the basis of his self-giving love. He became the propitiation for our sins. It's on that basis that the Father raised him up and seated him and gave him the name that's above every name at the right hand of the Father. So we we honour and we submit to him as our crucified and risen Lord. The hand that holds the scepter, that rules the nations, also bears the scars of his sacrificial death. Now, both the Gentile and the Jewish Christians at Corinth knew what it was like to have someone lord it over their faith. If you lived in the Roman Empire, you were required by law, under pain of death, to swear allegiance to Caesar as Lord. And eventually, that statement, Caesar is Lord, didn't just mean he is the absolute authority over my life, it came to mean Caesar is God. And so eventually it was required by law that before you enter a city or before you engage in business, you would have to offer incense to Caesar and confess Caesar is Lord. Jesus spoke about this. He said to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So the Gentile Christians knew what that meant to be lorded over in that way. Now the Jews, in theory, they rejected that kind of authority because they said God alone is our king. But in practice, they had leaders who wielded the law of God in order to lord it over their faith. Here's what Jesus says about these leaders. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So they practice, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honour at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be Your servant, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now we need to understand the point that Jesus is making here. He's not saying that we should not be taught or instructed by anyone or that there should be no one with whom we relate as a father or mother figure in our lives. But these three words... Rabbi, 
and instructor and father, they were honorific titles that were used to signify someone's high social status or their rank within the community. Jesus is very clear in that regard. Anyone who is his disciple shouldn't seek that kind of status, nor should they try and bestow that status on someone else. Lordship authority outside of the Lordship of Jesus Christ will always depend on law to get its way, as the Pharisees did. The scribes and Pharisees, they had to multiply the demands of God's law and they had to insist that unfailing obedience to all of these extra commands and traditions was necessary for someone to remain there, to retain their right standing before God. And they put themselves forward as shining examples of this law keeping. But actually what was happening was their traditions had enabled them to work around the trickier parts of the law while they did the easy parts. So they diligently tied their herbs and spices but they argued away the need for justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus described it as straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So religious leaders who lord it over people's faith, uh, they actually do it under, um, ironically, a, a place of insecurity. Their goal is to get people to conform to their particular view of how things should be in their church. And the way in which they do it is they lay down the rules and then they add new rules whenever they see the need to rein people in. Sometimes these rules might be explicit and enforced in a legalistic way or they might just be imposed in a subtle way. They might just change the culture and and push out those who don't agree with their point of view. Now, Paul knows that he could have used this approach as an easy fix to the problems in the Corinthian church. He could have shown up, he could have wielded his apostolic authority, he could have got rid of the people who disagreed with him and he could have made it very clear, Paul's way is the way for you to do church. He could have imposed the law on them, he could have told them precisely what you must do and how you must do it and when you must do it. He could have given them a very narrow and precise and detailed statement of faith that everyone had to wholeheartedly comply with. But he didn't. Instead, he went with the second model, which is a model based on grace. He says, we work with you for your joy. See how he says, work with you. He's a co-worker, he's not an overlord. He stands with, not above. Because, just like them, 
He's a sinner saved by grace through faith in Christ. So he must not, he cannot put himself in the place of Jesus to become the founder and the perfecter of their faith because they already stand firm in their faith. Their faith is based on what Jesus has done and is doing. Their faith is a gift from God. Paul could never create it or uh, maintain it for them. You don't stand firm in your faith because you're able to have a strong faith. You stand firm in your faith because the one who gives you that gift of faith is faithful. He is the one who is able to stop your feet from slipping. Now the goal of this kind of authority, working with you, is joy, not conformity. But here's the thing, joy will always lead to a willing obedience, not to man but to God. It's been said that at first glance a life driven by law and a life driven by grace will at first glance appear to be identical. The law comes and it gives external demands and it forces conformity to righteous living so a person who's under law will go out and they will obey the law but out of a fear of judgment. On the other hand, grace produces joy, not fear. Joy at knowing that we are accepted by the Father and it's not based on our performance but based on the free gift of Jesus who bore the judgment of our unrighteousness. Jesus who freely gives us as a gift his own righteousness to enable us to stand with no condemnation before the throne. And the joy of knowing this leads to a willing and a humble obedience, not to another set of principles, but to a person, to the one who redeemed us. Jesus said in John 15, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See how keeping Jesus' commandments here is the fruit of love, not a condition of love. Obedience is the proof that Jesus' disciples know the love of the Son and the Father. And obedience is, in the, is the way in which they live in that love. Not earning the love, but living in it, abiding in it. Knowing the dynamic reality of the love of God flowing to them and in them and through them to others. And what's Jesus' goal in this? Loving him and keeping his commands? Well, it's joy. And not just any joy, it's his joy. This is the joy that he knows as the Son 
who's always remained at the centre of the Father's affections for all eternity. He's always known the Father's pleasure in him. That's the joy that was set before him when he endured the cross and scorned its shame. And it's the same joy in the same measure that he seeks to fill up in us. Now, any of us who are involved in Christian leadership need to be constantly reminded of this this goal. Christian leaders are called to be shepherds of the flock and to do so as under-shepherds of the true shepherd, the good shepherd. Remember Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And what does this shepherd Lord do for us? Well, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Isn't that a portrait of joy? The shepherd doesn't demand that we do, but he forces us to stop doing and to receive from him what he is doing. So when we stand up after lying down in green pastures, we'll be able to walk in paths of righteousness as he leads us. So the purpose of leadership in the church isn't to get people to do a whole lot of stuff out of a sense of obligation or so that we can preserve or grow the church. It should be to increase our joy as together we fix our eyes on Jesus so that we will be a people filled with the joy of Christ, always rejoicing in the Lord. So Paul wanted to work with the Corinthians for their joy. But there's a threat, well there's a number of threats to joy, aren't there? One is that we lose sight of the gospel, we lose sight of that wonderful truth of what the Father has done for us in Christ. But another threat to joy in the church is unforgiveness, conflict between people. Now we saw, as I said, Paul's original plan was to visit Corinth a second time on his way to Macedonia and to stay there for a length of time in Corinth, sorry, after Macedonia. And he said, I'll come and maybe I'll stay with you for the whole winter during that time. But he also made a brief visit on the way to Macedonia and that visit had not gone well. There was some confrontation between him and a man in the church. And Paul had left discouraged, or to use the word he uses, pained. Last week, if you remember, our passage had that word comfort occurring repeatedly through the passage. The key word in today's passage is this word, pain. The word means grief, sorrow, heaviness and it appears seven times in verses 1 to 7. 
In essence, this word is describing something that is the opposite to joy. Paul says, um, I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure that all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. Paul wanted to experience joy in that visit, but instead his joy was robbed from him. And what had robbed that joy from him and the Corinthians was this conflict. One man had set his heart against Paul, but in doing so, he had caused a ripple effect so that his fractured relationship with Paul had spread to pain in the church. And so they were in danger, in danger of having their joy replaced with pain. Now this experience is in some sense inevitable for any church. I'm not sure I can think of any church that I know of that hasn't experienced at some point in its history some kind of personal conflict that has uh, spread and affected the whole congregation. Conflict that has resulted in a loss of joy, a loss of members, maybe even a complete loss of joy by the church closing its doors. Now when I say inevitable, I don't mean, I don't mean it in a fatalistic or a resigned way, but simply a realistic way, a biblical way, because the church is comprised of sinners saved by grace. Sinners who still battle with sin, still battle with pride and selfishness. Whenever you put sinners together, there will be friction, even in a setting such as a church, where we're coming under the sound of God's word, where we have the Holy Spirit himself dwelling in our midst. Nowhere does Jesus promise that the church will be perfect, this side of the new creation. And nowhere does he tell us that we should expect to achieve it. In fact, I'll be as bold as to say that his design for the church is that we will experience conflicts. Because that's part of the process that he uses to strip us from dependence upon ourselves so that we put our dependence on him. So while we're called to strive for unity, to flee from division, we need to see that if and when conflict happens in the church, it's been allowed by Jesus. He's the Lord of the church. Nothing can happen in the church unless he allows it to happen. And it's part of his disciplining, his refining, his maturing work among us. Now this confidence in Jesus' sovereignty as Lord of the Church isn't an excuse though for us to seek resolution when there is conflict. Now the easy way to deal with conflict, as we all know, is separation. If someone has upset me or offended me or hurt me, if I don't like what they've done or I don't agree with what they stand for, the easy way is just to cut them out of my life, to go on living 
pretending that they don't exist. In his book, uh, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis paints a picture, a metaphorical picture of hell in which no one gets along with their neighbours and so they keep moving to get away from their neighbours and everyone is moving further and further away until they are just living on their own millions of miles from anyone else. That's how we as sinful human beings deal with conflict. That's how we dealt with our personal conflict with God. We see that epitomised in Cain. Cain consistently rejected the Lord's offers and advances of reconciliation after he'd killed his brother and we're told he went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod means the land of wandering, restlessness. Rather than experience the loss of pride that comes with repenting and turning back to God, instead we live as if he doesn't exist. We suppress the truth. All the evidence of his glory that's around us in creation and in our own consciences, we we push aside. But the grace of God in the Gospel resolves conflict not by separation, but by bringing back together through reconciliation, through forgiveness. And so verse 7 here is key. You should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, did you see, there's that word that we focused on last week, comfort. He's saying be a paraclete to him. Remember how we saw that comfort is not so much about making someone feel better, but about helping someone to get back up on their feet, to stand stand straight and to keep on running the race that's set before them. And this was to be their goal for this man, full restoration to the fellowship of the church, not so much for their sake, but for his sake. The word translated sorrow is the same word that's translated in the other verses as pain. Their primary concern for him, even though he was someone who had caused problems and division in the church, their primary concern for him is that he should not come to a place where he's lost his joy to the point where it overwhelms him and it shipwrecks his faith. Now there's something conspicuous here by its absence. There's no indication that we know of that this man had yet repented or apologised for his actions. And I think if, if he had repented, Paul probably would have mentioned it because it would have actually strengthened his arguments for reconciliation. But we don't know whether he'd repented or not because in a sense that's irrelevant. The process of forgiveness doesn't wait for the offending party to apologise before the offended party offers 
forgiveness. If I'm offended in my heart against someone and I say in my heart I'll only decide to forgive if and when they apologise and make things up to me, then any reconciliation that does come will will actually be half-hearted because I've actually made it a condition, a conditional forgiveness. It's a contractual thing. I'll be forgiving them only because I feel some measure of justice has been met uh, in their humble apology. But true forgiveness must start in the heart of the offended person, even before the offender apologises, even if there's no guarantee that the offender is going to apologise. Reconciliation initiated by the offended party is a reconciliation based on grace. In fact, when Paul says you should turn to forgive him, he uses a word that's not used often for the word forgiveness, but it means literally you should turn to grace him. Justice might tell you that his actions deserve that, you're, that he is removed from your fellowship. Grace tells you, bring him back in, restore him. Because isn't that the way the Father has treated us? He didn't wait for our apology before sending his Son into the world. He resolved to bring about forgiveness through, though, uh, through his grace... And that was in his heart, not only before we repented, but before we even sinned, before we were even created, before the foundation of the world. That was in his heart. His plan for the Son to come and redeem sinners was already there before he created us. Without this initiation by God as the offended party, we, the offenders, would never have repented. We would never have come back to him by our own strength or our own motivation. It was his kindness that was shown to us in what was already accomplished at the cross that leads us to repentance. It's only the Father's initiative. It's only because of that we can say that salvation is purely by grace, unmerited undeserved, unconditional. So what of this man who had been responsible for robbing Paul of his joy and robbing the Corinthians of their joy? Well, they are to grace him, to comfort him, to reaffirm their love for him, to fight for his joy. Pursuing reconciliation is never an easy process. It's rarely simple. And sometimes it involves more pain. But the gospel of God's grace sets us free to be truly and genuinely reconciled to one another in Christ because he is the one who does the work of reconciliation. He is the mediator between us and God, but he also does that work of mediating between us and one another. He breaks down the hostility and the division 
and the, the many and various walls that we build up between us and one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we do not, in a sense, relate directly to one another. Christ always stands between us as our mediator, not to divide us, but to unite us. Finally, we're told that unforgiveness not only uh, dishonours Christ's work and undermines the message of grace, but it also gives Satan a foothold. Satan is described in Revelation chapter 12 as the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before God. This is his chief work. He seeks to undermine and discredit God by undermining and discrediting God's people. He accuses God's people, those whom God calls saints. Those whom we saw last week are those who bear his name, those who have been given his Holy Spirit, who guarantees our inheritance. If he can discredit God's people, then he's discredited God because God has said, I have invested myself in these people. God has staked his own reputation, his own glory on those whom he's redeemed through his son. So if those whom God has called righteous can be shown to be unrighteous through accusation, then God will be shown to be unrighteous and unworthy of ruling the universe. But verse 11 and 10 tell us, Satan's been thrown down. He's been conquered by the blood of the Lamb and proclaimed his uh, defeat, this victory of Christ that has defeated Satan is proclaimed by us in the word of our testimony. So can you see that if if we are accusing our brother or sister in such a way that we we don't want forgiveness and we don't, are not willing to work for forgiveness and reconciliation, then we've actually been tricked into doing Satan's work for him. Ongoing accusation and resentment and unforgiveness isn't only undermining a brother and sister, but it's saying of God... That God who declares all of our sins forgiven in Christ, who holds nothing we've ever done and nothing we will ever do against our record, we're saying that God is wrong because there's at least this one sin that this person has committed against me that cannot be forgiven. So remaining in unforgiveness, that's exactly where Satan wants us to be a place where we presume to be the arbiters of good and evil, to be able to see and understand the the motives of my neighbour's heart. That's the same temptation, wasn't it, that Satan gave to Adam and Eve. Take from the tree of knowledge and you'll be like God and you'll know the difference between good and evil. You will become a judge. But Satan 
the accuser has been thrown down. We share through faith in the victory of Christ over him. How is that victory to be manifested in our lives? Well, not by a triumphalism, not by a uh, self-absorbed piety, but by practising forgiveness, reconciliation, comfort towards one another. Satan hates a people who stand firm in their assurance that they are a justified people in Christ. He hates all the more when those people who know they're justified in Christ demonstrate that reality by treating one another as people who are justified in Christ. And I think the thing he will hate the most is that when people do that, they find joy, complete joy in doing it. So we must fight for joy. Fight for our own joy by reminding ourselves of our position in Christ as children and heirs of God and fight for one another's joy as we strive and as we seek together to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace.